If you're familiar with the history of the Baptist denomination, you know that it traces its history back to the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation began when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to a chapel door in Germany. And these theses were really just arguments that he had against the Catholic Church and the way they were practicing certain doctrines. It's interesting, we know those facts, we know that story, but far, few people, far fewer people know what those arguments were and what they said. The very first of these arguments was on the doctrine of repentance. And here's what Martin Luther said. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers be one of repentance. So historically, this doctrine has been either abused or neglected. And even today, it continues to be abused, even in the church. Um, for example, you have people, some people that say, repentance isn't necessary. They say, God, Christ can be your Savior without Him ever being your Lord. In other words, you can verbally profess to have faith in Christ, but you never have to repent. Your actions never change. He never becomes your Lord and Master. All He is is your Savior. Such an idea is entirely foreign to the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible will you find that. In fact, the New Testament makes clear that Christ is your Savior and your Lord. It makes clear that repentance is, in fact, necessary for salvation and for forgiveness of sin. And we'll see that as we walk through this morning. Uh, but people also abuse this doctrine of repentance by saying that, yes, it is required for salvation. They get that part right. But then they go on to define repentance as a work. They say repentance is nothing more than obedience to God. That's all it is. It's just your works, your actions of following after God. The Bible makes clear repentance is something of the heart. It's inside. It's an internal transformation. And yes, it always will change your actions. And your, your actions will change and you will become obedient as you repent. But if repentance is just a work, if that's all it is, and it's required for salvation, then what do you have? You've got a works-based salvation and you're depending on nothing but your ability to muster up obedience in yourself to save yourself. So we've got misunderstandings on both sides. We've got people who say it's not required, and then we have people that say it is required, but um, they, they define it incorrectly. So we have to cling to the Word of God and let the Word of God instruct us and define this doctrine for us. And that's exactly what we're going to do um, in Joel chapter 2 this morning. You might be wondering, as we read through that, why in the world are we in Joel chapter 2? In fact, the English word repent never even occurs in this, this chapter. Why are we here? Why are we in Joel chapter 2? Well, if you were with us on Sunday nights, I hope the light bulbs are already going off in your head and you're remembering the vocabulary that we walked through on repentance. Um, we talked about the word shub. That word is the Hebrew word that's most often used to describe repentance in the Old Testament. And that word occurs multiple times in this passage. It's not a difficult word to understand. Uh, in fact, it's used all throughout the Old Testament to describe how people would turn, right? So I'm walking one direction, I'm going towards a city or something, and then I'll turn around and go the opposite direction. I'll go back the way I came. Um, or maybe I'm facing a certain direction, and then I turn. It's that word. That word's going to describe the way I turn from one direction to another, right? But then all of a sudden you get to Joel, 
And he's not talking about turning around your body. He's not talking about turning your face, right? What's he say? Joel says, yet even now, return to me, turn to God with all your heart. So, so, so Joel, the book of Joel, takes this physical word, this picture of turning around, and he applies it to a spiritual thing. He's saying, I don't, don't let your turning be physical. Turn to God with your heart. And so we're going to walk through this, um, and we're going to see the rich way that Joel describes repentance for us. Uh, but before we do, we really have to set up a little bit of context for the book of Joel. Uh, so Joel primarily is prophesying to the nation of Judah. If you remember back in the, the days of the kings of Israel, um, you had David, King David, and then David had his son Solomon, uh, and Solomon's son Rehoboam um, was a very foolish king. And in fact, he was so foolish that his leadership caused the nation to split. So ever since that day, you had Israel in the north, and you had Judah in the south, Right? And, and if you read through the history of Israel and you go through the books that describe the actions of the kings of Israel, you see time and time again, Judah turned away from God, they rejected God, and instead they followed after sin and iniquity. Uh, and, and Joel is no exception. That's exactly where we pick up the story. He's, he's, he's prophesying to Judah and he's proclaiming to them um, to repent this repentance comes right in the middle of God's judgment coming on the nation of Judah. See, all through those times when, God's, when, when the people are rebelling against God, God often uses judgment to call His people back to Himself and to cause them to repent. And so in the book of Joel, God is sending judgment upon the nation of Judah. In fact, what it is, it's a plague of locusts that He has sent. And it's hard for us to even wrap our minds around how serious this was. But this locust plague had gotten so bad and had persisted for so long that it was destroying all their crops, animals were dying out, people were about to starve to death. If this thing didn't relent, if it didn't stop, it could have wiped out the nation of Israel. It was a very serious plague. And this is the context into which God calls His people unto repentance. It starts with the words, Yet even now. What's the time? What is now? It is in the midst of God's judgment. He's allowing them an opportunity and a window of time to repent. I can't help but think of Romans chapter 2, verse 4. We walked through this um, a couple months ago as Joey was leading us through the book of Romans. And we saw that chapter 1 of Romans paints this picture of God's wrath revealed against all humanity, against all ungodliness. And you get the picture of God's judgment, right? And then you get to chapter 2, verse 4, and it says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? To repentance. So you get this picture, God's judgment, His wrath against sin is put on display for sinners to see. And then there's a window and there's an opportunity of time for people to repent. Yet even now, turn to the Lord. And it's the same for us, right? There's a time God's judgment put on display as we come to realize God's judgment against sin, God's hatred for sin. There's a time, there's an opportunity, even if you're here this morning hearing the Word of God, what a privilege it is to be able to hold the Word of God in your hand. What a privilege it is that God's been gracious enough to allow you to do that and to hear His Word. Don't let that window of opportunity pass by. Repent while you can for God's forbearance isn't promised to last forever. 
His wrath is great. Don't let this window, this opportunity of time, pass you by. Yet even now, turn to the Lord. During this season of opportunity, turn to God. But Joel doesn't leave us hanging with what repentance looks like, right? He doesn't just leave the command out there. He gives us great description and great detail on what this turning to God, this repentance, is to look like. Uh, What's he say? Look at verse uh, 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Okay, so again, repentance, as I talked about, is often misunderstood to be something that's merely external, right? It's just your actions. But the command here is to turn to God with all your heart. It's an internal thing that's happening. It's a changing, it's a redirection, it's a total, I was going this way with my heart, and now I'm going this way with my heart. Total redirection. Now to really understand what what the passage is getting at here, we have to understand what he means by heart, right? If we're to turn to God with our heart, we really need to know what he's talking about. You know, in English, we use the term heart to describe emotions and maybe our affections. For example, if we say, man, that guy is making decisions with his heart and not his head, what would we mean? We'd mean that he's making emotion-based decisions, he's not thinking rationally, right? In Hebrew, they don't have two separate words for heart and mind. They don't have a word that describes what you do with your heart and then another one that describes your mind. They're both encapsulated with one word, and that's the word used in this passage. So your heart wasn't just the center of your emotions. No, it was also the center of your logic. It was the center of the thing that you made decisions with and evaluated things and your worldview. Your heart was the center of your decision-making, your will, the thing that motivates you to action. And so as that changes radically and as that is completely redirected towards God, you see that repentance isn't just a part of you. Repentance is total. Repentance penetrates to the very core of who you are as a person and redirects your entire identity and life towards Christ. For example, what we do on a weekly basis as Christians doesn't make logical sense to a lost and dying world. It doesn't make sense for people to take time on the two days a week that they get off from work and to take the money that they've worked hard for and give it willingly to the church. It doesn't make sense that God would put on flesh and become a man and die on the cross for us. None of the Christian faith makes logical sense to a lost and dying world. Yet when we repent and our minds and our hearts are turned towards God, all of a sudden those things make sense. Our logic is changed radically, right? Same thing with our desires and our motives for, um, for decisions and our actions, right? We aren't motivated um, by our nature to do anything that would please God, right? But when God changes us and radically gives us a new heart, all of a sudden our desire goes away from sin and towards godliness, right? And our actions, as a result, change because of the repentance that's occurred in our hearts. Same thing with our affections. Good grief. When we're born into the world, we're born with a love for sin and a hatred or at least a... Um, a complacency towards God, a, a, a lack of care or concern whatsoever towards the things of God, right? 
But as we're given a new heart that's turned towards God, all of a sudden we go from loving sin to hating sin. And all of a sudden we go from hating God to loving God. It changes radically your affections. Note, too, that it doesn't say part of your heart. Yes, it's all these things, but it's not 50% of your affections. It's not 50% of your actions. It's all of it that's supposed to be turned fully towards God. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 3 recounts a time when Judah, it says, Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. It's possible for us to turn to God partially and not fully, and that sort of repentance where we're hanging on to our sins still won't accomplish anything at all. Repentance the type of repentance we're demanded to have is a repentance where we're fully turned towards God. Every aspect of our hearts are turned fully towards God. That's the picture of repentance. The reason why Joel is such a great place to turn, though, is he's constantly balancing out the extremes that people jump to, right? We're so prone to jump from one radical extreme to the other. Uh, so as soon as you start talking about how repentance is an internal thing, and it's of the heart. All of a sudden, you're going to have people sit back and relax a little bit and say, well, good. That means I don't have to change anything at all about my actions. What does Joel say? Um, end of verse 12 says, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, you are to turn to God. There's visible changes that come alongside and come with our turn to God, right? So I used to tell people that I liked working on cars. I have had my fill of it, and I really don't like it anymore. Um, but the thing about working on cars is a lot of times it's just a game of trying to figure out what's going on on the inside of your engine without tearing it all apart, right? So you can take off your spark plugs and look at those. You can pour out some oil and see if it looks a little bit milky. If you've got some water in there, your head gasket's not doing too good, right? You can look at and observe the things that's going on on the outside and that'll tell you and help you evaluate what's going on on the inside. It's the same thing with these actions and these external things that are coming alongside with repentance. They aren't repentance themselves, yet they tell you what's going on on the inside. If your actions have no change whatsoever after you've repented, then the reality is you probably haven't repented at all because repentance changes you so radically and so fundamentally that your actions always will change. External actions are always going to come with repentance. External signs are necessary, they're good, and the specific ones that Joel mentions here are fasting, weeping, and mourning. You don't really see uh, that as much in the New Testament. In fact, the primary external thing in the New Testament is just obedience to the Word of God. That's the uh, external action that shows, yes, you've repented, if you're walking in obedience to the Word of God. The Old Testament really emphasizes these things like sorrow and contrition of heart over your sin, and that's a very good thing. It's a very, very good thing if you're broken enough over your sin that it moves you to tears. It's not always the case, um, but as you mature in this uh, doctrine of repentance and grow in it, be praying constantly more and more for a, a deeper hatred and a deeper resentment for sin to the point where you do weep and mourn over your sin. But as you are broken over and over um, over your sin, as Joel expresses, your actions will change. You know, that's, that's just how we operate. When, when someone apologizes to you over something, but they aren't, uh, they do it 
over and over again, there's no change in their actions, they just keep apologizing, eventually you're going to say, man, I really don't know how sorry you really are about this because you just keep doing it over and over again. It's the same with repentance. You know, if, if, if there's no brokenness, there's not going to be a change. But if you're truly broken over your sin and there is weeping and there is fasting and mourning, you're going to change your action. You aren't going to keep continuing on in that. So repentance always comes with external things. But again, Joel immediately um, addresses an abuse or an extreme that people would jump to, right? Joel knows that as soon as you give people a list of weeping and fasting and mourning, they're going to make a checklist. And they're going to say, okay, I've wept, I've fasted, and I've mourned. Therefore, I've repented. I'm good. Give me my forgiveness of sins. Right? We're so prone in our sin nature to rely on our works and to be able to point to something that we've done to earn salvation that anytime there's external stuff going on, we're going to make a checklist. We're going to be legalistic about it. And we're going to focus on that and entirely forget what's going on on the inside. So what does Joel say? Verse 13, Joel says, And rend your hearts and not your garments. What's he talking about here? What's it mean to rend your garments? Well, in the time, this was an expression of mourning or deep sorrow. Um, in fact, if somebody died or something like that, um, you would tear your clothes, and that would be a symbolic act of the mourning that you're going through. We'd think it'd be pretty weird if you pulled up to a funeral home and everybody was outside ripping their clothes up, but that's just the expression of sorrow and contrition that they, they used back then. Uh, this often happened when people were confronted with their sin, when the Word of God came to them and they realized how much they'd sinned, they would repent, they'd be broken over their sin, they would tear their clothes, right? The problem came in when people would start to tear their clothes even though they weren't broken at all on the inside. All of a sudden, you've got people expressing that they're sorry, expressing this act of mourning over sin, but in reality, they aren't sorry for it at all. They're wearing their torn clothes like a badge in order to get repentance, in order to get forgiveness. All they're doing is putting on a performance. Joel warns them, when you turn to God, do it without performances. Don't go around wearing your sorrow like a badge. Don't go around pointing to your actions and the external things that are necessary. Don't go around doing those and performing those thinking that you've truly repented and you truly deserve forgiveness if your heart isn't truly broken over your sin. Joel says, don't you dare tear up your clothes if your heart's not torn up. In other words, don't you dare go around doing all these actions and thinking that that's going to accomplish anything on your behalf if you aren't broken over your sin. Without performances, turn to God. Rend your hearts and not your garments. So, if we don't depend on our own works in repentance, if we don't have hope in our own works, what do we have hope in, in our repentance? What is our hope? What do we rely upon? Again, Joel answers our question. Look at verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. What is our hope in repentance? What do we repent for? We repent in total dependence on the character of God 
and not at all on our works. This pattern, this, this, this description of God um, is repeated eight times in the Old Testament. I know y'all are familiar with this. It's, it's God's own self-description that He gives when Moses says, God, let me see your glory. And God passes before him and He declares these words about His character. He, he declares that He is a Lord that is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's who He is, right? So it's repeated eight times in the Old Testament. You've got three times it's repeated in Psalms. But every other time that it's repeated in the Old Testament is in the context of repentance. It's in the context of someone mediating on behalf of the people that God would turn away His anger. It's in, the, it's in some of the passages that we walk through on Sunday nights, actually. This, um, the call to repentance and the act of repentance would be utterly vain were it not for God's faithfulness to His character. Our turning away from sin and turning towards God would be absolutely vain and worthless and empty were it not for God's mercy and grace and abundant love and kindness towards us. God's faithfulness to His character is why we repent. We serve a wonderful God, a glorious God, who's faithful to His character and faithful to His Word, and that's why we repent. We don't repent. We don't muster up actions in ourselves to earn ourselves or earn our way to heaven. Instead, we depend fully on the character of God. You know, our nation prizes independence so much. From a young age, we're taught to be independent. We value that. It's a virtue that we wave around like a, a badge of honor. And yet what we're called to do in this passage is completely the opposite of that. We're called to not depend on ourselves whatsoever. We're called to depend fully on the grace of God in our repentance. That's what our repentance ought to look like. Total, absolute dependence on the grace of God. That should be the motivation for our repentance. Again, though, some people are going to abuse even that. So Joel's quick to correct another abuse that will come up. As soon as you say, man, God is gracious. God is abundantly Loving kind, he has abundant loving kindness. He will forgive sin. You're going to have people, once again, who relax a little bit and say, oh, well, if your God's so gracious, that works out pretty well for me. I'm just going to keep on sinning the way I want to sin. I'm going to keep on doing the things I want to do. And maybe a couple years from now, I'll repent. Maybe a couple years from now, I'll ask forgiveness. And if he's gracious, then he'll just forgive me. That attitude is totally contrary to the attitude of repentance. In fact, it's incompatible with repentance on a, the most fundamental level. You cannot have a heart of repentance and also be presuming on the grace of God. So what, what is presumption on the grace of God? It's that attitude that says, God's gracious, He's going to forgive me, therefore I'm just going to keep on sinning the way I want to sin because that suits me well right now. Right? It's, the, it's an attitude of presuming that God's going to be gracious even though He doesn't guarantee it. What's Joel say? Verse 14, Who knows whether he will, he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. God had made many promises to the nation of Israel to prosper them and to bring them back after they were exiled and all these things. He made a promise to Abraham for land. But for whatever reason, God did not promise 
deliverance from the locust plague in the book of Joel. God didn't have to relent. The people's repentance wouldn't force God's hand. God wouldn't be manipulated, and God is not controlled by man's repentance. If we think we can control God's grace through our actions and through our repentance, then we have an attitude of presumption on God's grace. We think we can deserve, we deserve it and we can manipulate it. We're in control. It's funny, though. We, we think as soon as we come to this idea of presumption, we immediately start pointing fingers, right? We point fingers to the people in the Old Testament. We say, man, why in the world would they think that their sacrifices would do a thing for them when in reality they were far from God and they kept disobeying God and going after idols? Why in the world would they go and they would meet and they would do their sacrifices and observe their feasts? Why would they do that? Why would they, did they really think that would accomplish them anything whatsoever? We point the finger at their presumption of God's grace and we say, why would they think that that would accomplish them anything? In the same way, we point the finger sometimes at the Catholic Church and we say, man, why in the world, um, why in the world would they think that visiting a confession booth and doing these, these works of penance that they're given to do in order to make up for their sin, but then they continue on doing their sin because that's what they want to do, why in the world would that accomplish anything for them if their heart isn't changed and in reality they still love their sin and they're just, they're just doing their sin over and over again and just doing works in order to pacify it, in order to manipulate God's grace? Why in the world would they think that that's going to accomplish anything on their behalf? We point the finger at their presumptuous attitude. But are we really any different? Can people on the outside point fingers at us and say, why in the world do they think that meeting together each week and going through their motions and praying prayers of confession is going to accomplish anything for them? Because I know how they live throughout the week. They do not at all care about their sin. In fact, they indulge in it and they love their sin. Their heart's not broken for their sin whatsoever. They are acting presumptuously on the grace of God. They aren't, they aren't broken over their sin. They're just expecting God to be gracious because they walk through certain motions. All these attitudes of presuming on God's grace are just like a vending machine, right? You put in your money, you press a couple buttons, and you get what you want out of the machine. It treats God just like that. You walk through your motions, you say your prayer, you confess what you need to, and you get the grace you want out of God, and then you go about your day like nothing's ever happened. No change of action, no change of heart. That attitude is entirely contrary to the attitude of repentance. For the person whose confession and repentance is as shallow as their mouth and has no penetration to their heart, there's no promise of forgiveness. God makes no promise to forgive that person. There's no promise of grace. In a similar way, we often take the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament, promises about prosperity and land and all these things about economic peace and political peace, and we apply them to America. And we say, man, if this nation would just repent, God will heal this land, He will give us prosperity, He will give us peace, all these things. There's no promise of that. There was for Israel, but there's no promise of that for America. Should we repent? 
Yes, absolutely. But there's not a promise that God will relent, even if this nation does repent. There's no promise of economic peace. There's no promise of political peace. There's no promise of prosperity. The prosperity gospel says, if you turn to God, He'll grant you whatever you want in terms of physical desires. Whatever you want, you can have if you turn to God. God never promises those things. All those things are presumption on God's grace. God doesn't promise any of those things. Yes, at times, He decides to be abundantly gracious beyond what we deserve, but that's just because that's who He is. It's not because of what we've done. It's certainly not because we deserve it. And so it's such a dangerous and antithetical attitude towards repentance to have any kind of presumption towards God's grace. God does not promise prosperity or political peace or economic peace. But God does promise something far greater in His Son, Jesus Christ, and that's peace with God. In fact, our turning towards God is to be characterized by a desire for God Himself. Uh, Turn with me, if you will, to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah is written, it's uh, several hundred years after the book of Joel is written. And since the time that Joel is written, the people were exiled into a foreign land because of their disobedience to God. And then they repent, and God allows them to go back into the land, into the land that He promised Abraham a very, very long time ago. So by the time you get to Zechariah, the people are back into the land. Things aren't great. The land's in ruins. They have a lot of work to do. They're going to be rebuilding it. But they have, once again, participated or partook in the promise that God made to Abraham. They've got the promised land. They're back, right? But then what's Zechariah say? He says, therefore, in verse 3, he says, Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The people are saying, Zechariah, what are you talking about? We've, we've got the promised land. We've got what we want. We've got what we need. We're participating in the promise of God. And Zechariah says, no, look, you're missing the point. There's something greater than land going on here. In fact, if you repent and you turn to God, He promises Himself to you. He will give Himself to you. That promise comes true abundantly in the New Testament. Christ gives Himself on our behalf. And as uh, Tyler walked us through the doctrine, or walked us through the peace that Christ has accomplished on our behalf with God um, in Romans chapter 5, Christ, we aren't promised political peace. We aren't promised economic peace, but we are promised peace with God if we repent. Galatians 5.16 promises that if we walk in the Spirit, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. If we repent and we are returning to God and turning to Him fully, we won't endlessly be in a pattern of living for ourselves and living in sin and depravity. No, we can turn to God and cling to Him, and God, by His Spirit, will allow us to not gratify the desires of the flesh. But most significantly, church, God promises forgiveness of sins for those who turn to Him and depend fully on Him. Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. God's promise to us is so much greater than the promises made about land and prosperity to the nation of Israel. God's promise to us, if we repent, is that He will forgive our sins before God. That is our greatest need. 
And that is what God has promised to give us, is forgiveness of our sins and peace with God if we turn fully to Him. So what's the picture of repentance that Joel paints for us? Repent to God while the opportunity exists. Don't wait. Yet even now, turn to God. Don't wait because God is gracious enough to give you a window and a time to repent. So don't wait. Don't, don't take that for granted. Yet even now, turn to God. Repent with sincerity of your heart. Repentance is an internal thing. It involves every aspect of your heart. And this is why repentance is an ongoing thing in our lives, right? As we are moving into the new year and we reflect back on the previous year, we can look back and see all the times, all the decisions we've made where our heart is not fully turned to God, right? Our, our decisions, our thoughts, our logic, our affections, they aren't fully turned to God. And so as we move into the new year, let 2023 be a year where we are consistently, constantly turning more and more to God with every aspect of our hearts. Turn to God with all your heart. Repentance comes with visible changes, external signs, right? Let our actions be changed. But also repentance is to be done without performances. It's not just external signs. Don't wear your actions like a badge for all to see and say that you've earned repentance. No, repentance is internal. Um, but it comes with actions. So change your actions, but don't wear them like a badge. Repentance is complete dependence on the character of God. In fact, we must turn to God without any presumption on His grace, but full dependence upon His grace. And we're to turn to God with desire for God. Y'all, the greatest part about repentance is what God has accomplished for us in repentance. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that our hearts are uh, deceitful and desperately sick. The, the translation of that desperately sick is literally incurably sick. We have and are born with a heart that's bent towards sin and it's incurably sick and it's bent towards sin. There's absolutely no hope for us in saving ourselves and giving ourselves a new heart. We can't do it. So how do you cure an incurably sick heart? You can't. All you can do is rely fully on the promise of God to give you a new heart, one that's a heart of flesh and not of stone. All, all our hope in repentance is to turn and to cry out to God and, and utter dependence on God for His grace to give us a heart that's turned towards Him and away from sin. Finally, as we repent and as we understand this doctrine of repentance, we're called to go and proclaim this repentance to the world, right? In Luke 24, 47, Christ is about to ascend into heaven and He's sending out His disciples and He calls them to go out into the world and to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is the message that we're to take to a lost and dying world, the message of repentance, because repentance is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray.